0: Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where my friend Lewis and I interview incredible entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, creators, and more. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Reed Mountby on the podcast. Reed is the executive director of the Intercollegiate Sailing Association and the author of a new book called The Spartan Mindset, Mastering the Language of Excellence. In this book, we dive deep into the lessons of the book, including the power of words, the, the way that your words influence your brain and other people's brains, uh, the role of a coach and how they affect our lives, coaches' responsibility and duty to their players, their community, and themselves, why he decided to be so personal in this book and how writing it affected him so much more. This is a great conversation, and it is so obvious to me how much Reed cares about his audience, his book. His players uh, and his community, and it was a pleasure to sit down with him and discuss this book and his life. Uh, I will switch to the episode now. Coach Reed, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm excited to be here. You've got a heck of a show. We we try to. I want to start your pod. I want to start this podcast with a quote from your book. Um, I think that it really summarizes it well, and it stood out to me. And that is, words hold great power over mankind they build up, they tear down, reset things, and set off firestorms in our brains and on the battlefields of life and sport. And I think that that is a, a beautiful quote. And I just wanted to hear from, from your perspective what that quote means and how y- you got to this point where you wanted to write a book about the power of words and language.
1: Certainly. Uh, so that quote, as I was writing the book, I was thinking about you know, the power of words and how, how much to do in our world. And I started thinking about Shakespeare and how he has shaped our, even our common insults in our vernacular, a lot of, you know, turns of, of language and a lot of quips and cranks come from people like Shakespeare. So it's, you know, we've, we've had language influencing us for, for, you know, decades and decades and centuries, and even going all the way back as, you know, some of the Greek philosophers and the language that they used. And so I started to think about what do words actually do? You know, they all, you know, Shakespeare said the pen is mightier than the sword. And I started to think about the fact that what usually starts a war is a miscommunication. And what usually ends a war is a coming to agreement. And what, you know, what, what, what spurs a great idea is somebody communicating, hey, this, what if we did this? Or I have this great idea. And so I started to realize how powerful words are because really the words, it's what separates us from anything else on the planet. Animals communicate, but not as deeply and as richly as we do. We have a, you know, rich tapestry of of language that we use to communicate. And so, and, and it creates such a nuance that that's where the quote came from was that idea that I just wanted to show how powerful language is. It's not just words. Every word matters. It's not just speaking. We are bringing into existence things when we, when we open our mouths and words come out. And then how I got to the book was I, I did a TEDx in 2015 on the power of a coach's words. And at the time I was really more it was less about single words or how the words were structured, but just the fact that the way we speak to people has an impact on them. And that research has shown that speaking to people in a certain way can actually cause damage to the brain if it's chronic verbal abuse. And so from that, I, I really started to go deep into the word nerd lifestyle and became very intentional about how I was speaking to my athletes, how I was speaking to my children. And the book came about because it was a challenge from my son because I was working on a presentation that had to do with fixing words. Like we use certain words in sport context. And I had this presentation called warrior brains where I, I took liberty. It's not how it works, but you know, neuroscience wise, that certain parts of the brain would light up based on words that we use. And so it was a this, not that. So instead of saying, instead of creating fear in somebody, use the word love so that you calm them down. So their amygdala is not activated so that they stay grounded in there. And they're still using the logic in their brain. Instead of this word, use that word. Instead of can't try you know, use this word instead of, but use this word. And my son said, "Man, Dad, you should really write a book because you're such a word nerd." And so that's where it came to life was was him challenging me and me going even deeper and saying it's not just how we speak to people, but it's the exact words can make such a difference in somebody's performance. Whether it's on the sports field, in cryptocurrency, in, in you know on the trading floor, on on the stage, in a book, it doesn't matter where, but let the the words we use have an impact on how people show up and perform.
0: Absolutely, that example reminds me of Jerome Powell in the Federal Reserve um, because when he you know does a an foMC meeting and speaks to basically the world and the markets, every single word that he says ha- has a measurable impact on the the financial markets, which then affects everything else. but it's like if he uses one word in place of another, that will have a, a meaningful impact on the outcome of the, the markets um but one thing that you said earlier about the power of words to build the world around us one thing that i had thought a lot about um is the way spaces affect our our world so like the, you know you, you brought up greek philosophers um they would not have had the same thoughts is if they did not have the space around them to uh, the beautiful space to inhibit and create that in their minds and in those conversations. But what created those spaces were words, were plans that they spoke to each other. And I think that that's a really um, interesting thing that I learned while reading your book is that it wasn't the space. It was the words that created the space. It is. And, and we don't think about it until we step back and think about the fact that the world we
1: see today came from some, like I said, somebody communicating an idea, or like you said, creating that space. So we put people on the moon and we're now traveling to space and we're, we're talking about going to Mars because at some point in time, somebody said, what if we could do that? And then in here in our country, you know, uh, John F. Kennedy said, well, we will put a person on the moon. And so the words created the space. He's the, he said that and then he had to back it up and to back it up, we'd funnel all these resources and find all the experts and, you know, build all of the, the, the technology. And so without having that thought, if, without looking to the stars and saying, I want to go there someday. We wouldn't have created the space travel that we have. We wouldn't have created the, 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 you know, the aeronautic systems that we see. The Wright brothers, what if, what if a person could fly? You know, it, it, so I, it, I think you saw it probably in the book where I said a lot of amazing things have come from a very quiet what if, and we create a lot of space around us. And, you know, even just going to like Isaac Asimov, things that are fiction, especially our science fiction writers wrote and they brought into being from their brains. They were completely fictional. These were things that they just dreamed up, and then they put it on a page, and people read those words. Those have spawned certain technologies, and they've spawned certain lifestyles. And and we're in a lot of things we have are because people had these amazing thoughts in their heads, which were words, and then they
0: put them down on paper for us, and it created the the world around us. Um, so I, I want to approach this from two different ways. One from like the coach's perspective. And then one from uh, the child or the individual receiving the words perspective. So, what lessons can we learn from the power of words in internal dialogue? Like, how should um, we help people to better understand the words in their heads and how that affects their internal world? So, one is we have to understand as
1: influential adults in the lives of children. Or just in in the people around us, the people we lead, if you are in a position of influence, the words you use actually become, tend to also be part of the inner dialogue of the people with whom Mm. you have that influence or over whom you have that influence. So Mm -hmm. the words I use become their vocabulary, right? And so we have to be very careful. That's what the whole TEDx was about. We have to be very careful about what words we're implanting. And it's, it's a very narrow viewpoint and it's, it's not 100% correct. But if you think of the brain like a computer, the words we use are the software. So if I'm writing code on the brains of the people I lead, I have to be careful I'm not inserting malware in their words that I ca- actually can, you know, limit their performance. When people have an t- internal dialogue and we recognize it as a bystander, the other obligation that we have is to be able to help them with their dialogue and understand their dialogue. And so if you hear somebody that's got a negative dialogue, you could be that accountability partner who helps them switch that word, who changes it out. You can be the one who reminds them or, and and you don't want to invalidate how they feel, but to, 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 to help them change that dialogue so it's more positive. And, and that's, you know, that's the big thing I, I do a lot with the athletes that I work with and even with my own family is, is what is, and they do it with me is tell me what your internal dialogue is. You know, usually you can see it through somebody's language or through their actions, but if people are having these negative internal dialogues, then it's our obligation to help be that person that helps them shift it.
0: Coaches have a outsized impact on the long-term success of their players, especially at a young age. How, and how do you implant into coaches how they're supposed to implant into their, um, you know, students and players? I think the first thing is making that connection with the coaches. You
1: can't really correct or help anybody unless there's that deep connection. So it's getting the coaches to understand that I'm going to help them become better coaches and create a better legacy. And then it's getting them to be a little bit more intentional. We, we focus so heavily in sports on the hardware, on the outcomes, on the body and on the movement, on the physical performance that we forget about, And I don't like the term soft skills, you know, because they're not really soft skills. They're, they're, they're life skills, but we forget about the other skills that are involved. And so we, we will script perfectly a a, a training session, for instance, on particular skills. And we'll go through, walk through steps of how to teach it. And we, we know all the exercises we want to use and we know where we want the athletes to be in certain spaces within that, within that training exercise, but we don't actually write down the words we want to use. And that's one of the things that I always tell coaches is you should be as nerdy in scripting how you speak in training sessions as you are in the training sessions themselves for a couple reasons. For one, when you get into game situations, you can't communicate as deeply and as richly as you can in training. Training's where a lot of the work is being done. It's a coach's job during the week. On the weekend, it's now the player's time. And so there's not nothing you can do for them from the sideline that's gonna change their performance much, except for those little, what I call Twitter communications, the Twitter talk, which is like really quick, short 140 character comments that are going out, and they're going out to all the athletes. So if in training you've been creating ignition words and cueing words and trigger words that remind athletes of things that Mm. you worked on in training, then that's all you need to say during games is those trigger words and cue words and it'll remind them of the skills they worked on and it'll trigger those brain processes. So you've made your life easier. The other side of that is working with coaches is I remind them that kids take things very literally and they remember, like you said, they remember a lot more than we expect. And we cannot guarantee that they'll remember the words we hope they remember. It's up to them. We cannot guarantee that they'll remember the one positive word we said mixed in amongst five negatives. There's a good chance they're going to remember the negative. And, or we could say 20 positive things in one negative. That may be the thing they latch on to. So it's our job to make sure that we create a language environment in training sessions that leaves them with that good code. And there are ways to demand excellence from people without demeaning them. There are ways to correct somebody without humiliating them, and there are ways to give negative feedback without using negative language, and that's our job as coaches because if we do that, and here, and the reason why is as we write that code, it piles up and it creates lifelong habits and mental tendencies. You said you have these very fond memories and you didn't realize how much influence mentally on you sport had until you started reading the book and, and thinking back to, to times you played. Every former athlete goes through that. Even the kids who only play for a season who aren't quote unquote athletes, they leave our care and we have imprinted words on their brains. Those words become their entire, their internal dialogue. And that internal dialogue will drive how they see, think and interact and feel about the world around them. And that's what scares me is if when, when we imprint malware on people, we're creating these people who see and interact with the world in a no negative way and have this terrible inner dialogue.
0: It's really interesting because as I was reading the book, you know, it's kind of a, a collection of the ways in which words have impacted you over time. Uh, there's one section where you're talking about, uh, you know, as a ninth grader, you got cut from your your basketball team and your coach had all of these good things to say about you and you're, you're, you're a good player, you're this and that and the other thing, but you have an attitude. And that but is what took you that's what you remember and that's why that has such a big impact on your life and so it's kind of exactly what you're talking about and maybe that was a positive or a negative for you but still it's it's the the lasting impact and and how this book even and and every book is just a collection of of the way words have impacted you and that's really an interesting i I haven't thought about like that yet
1: yeah and that story i took creative liberty, because to be honest with you, I don't remember exactly what was said before the word, but I remember there were some nice things being said. I remember that what, you know, what I brought to the court as an athlete, but to be honest, it was the stinkiest part of the conversation. Everything that was said before it was forgotten for the negative. And I did have a bad attitude because I, at the time I was actually what I thought was pretty darn good at basketball. I was trying out with kids who I'd been playing with and against for years in the local community system. Some of them were on my team and I knew where I stacked up against them as a teammate. Some of them, you know, sat the bench behind me. And, and so I knew, and so I think I went in with, and I didn't mean to, but I did, there were, it, it all started because I, I didn't like taking my shirt off. And that was one of the things is we played shirts and skins and it really bothered me. And I think that's what triggered me during the tryouts. And so I did have a bad attitude and the shame of it is, is it affected how I tried out, but more importantly, that negative feedback that was delivered, like you said, left an imprint on me for life. Like I always think about that day and how it, I quit every other sport. I was a multi-sport athlete. I played everything under the sun. That day was the day I came home and said, I'm sticking with soccer. I quit every other sport. And I, and I you know, that was it for me. And sadly, years later, my dad said, soccer was your worst sport. I had no, I couldn't figure out why you quit everything else. It was that word. It was, it was how I felt about that. And there are other situations. and And a lot of us have those where, certain words trigger a memory within us that sticks with us for life. And we may not even remember the, everything else falls away. We may not remember where we were, when it was said, what the score of the game was, who we were playing, none of the other, what team I was on, none of the other details, but we remember those certain words that triggered, as Maya Angelou said, how we feel. And then that Mm. shapes, that shapes our, our lifelong feeling about that. Like I've always had a sour taste in my mouth about playing basketball since
0: yeah and i think if you could just implant the knowledge that the words those words are so powerful into coaches that it would be markedly important because then they would know how important the words that they have and that they're implanting are um one thing i wanted to talk to you about is is how deeply personal you got throughout the book You talked about your your money problems you talked about your problems with your wife and with your your child and and one thing that really stuck out to me that i want to ask about is in the chapter maybe at the um the the ballpark but i wanted to ask um through writing such a personal book what did you learn about yourself and like the reflection on you know your life i guess i learned (laughs) i learned where
1: my trauma was so i in writing it, because I I needed stories that matched up to the words, and like you said, those words, all the words that I that I used in a book meant something to me, like the butt word and others. So obviously, these had a profound impact and effect on me for life. So behind it, I had to understand: is there trauma, or is there you know joy behind those words? And so I learned where my trauma was, and writing a book helped me work through some of that trauma. Like I don't I don't feel as I I don't have as much trauma about certain situations that arose with those words. It also taught me that that's where we grow. That that's, that's what my power is in the fact that there were times in my life that were traumatic or heavy failures and, and I got past them. I moved forward and being able to write about them allowed me to move on. And the other thing about those, those stories was I, I learned, I learned how powerful, the people around me have been since some of those stories happened and building me back up and the profound impact I have on those same people around me, the interactions with my children. I look at them and I think, okay, so the things I say to them are echoes of my mentors and my parents and my grandparents and everybody else coming out into my children. And it's exciting to see some of the the growth that my children have done because the, the, the best part is they'll be the next generation of my family. They'll be even better than... There'll be the 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 generation that's one percent more or you know improvement over mine because of being so aware of these stories and these words that we use.
0: And you reflect a lot throughout the book on uh, moments where your your child or your son will will say something to you that's a reflection of you, and you're kind of looking in the mirror and you're like, oh my god, like I did not mean for that to be imprinted on him. And I think that uh, you know it's a very powerful um it's it's very powerful just the relationship that you kind of see between your words and your son's actions throughout the book and there's one moment which i just mentioned earlier about in, in the chapter maybe where you're at the ballpark and you you know you're out of money basically and you need he wants ice cream and what was important to me in it was that i remembered while reading it moments where i had done that to my dad you know like asked for something and, and continued to ask for things and i don't know how to describe it properly but like it put me in his shoes reading it from your perspective and so i was able to like kind of finally understand that like my dad's a person too. And he had those moments where he, he actually didn't have any money. He wasn't just holding it back from me. It was like a, 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 it was equally as hard for him or more hard for him to not give it to me. And I thought that that was, um, that was important for me. So I just wanted to say thank you for, for that part of that. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs)
1: Um, I actually, I'm grateful for that interaction too, because writing about it allowed me to be a little bit more open with my children and it's something now we're we're very open with them uh, about our situations and i think it's that toxic male or or not even toxic male it's just there's an ego that you have that you don't want your children to see you as a failure mm. and you don't want your children to see you as less than and that was a very hard moment to feel less than like i'm failing my kid because i can't afford to buy him ice cream and Am I depriving him of something in this world? And no, actually, nowadays, being able to say to my kids, they're much older, we can't afford that right now, or this, you know, I'm not capable of that. It actually is a superpower because it's teaching my children that it's okay that there's no such thing as being less than, that it's okay to fall slightly short of something at some point in time, or it's okay not to have something or not to have a particular skill. The the key is, is to teach beyond that, I can't right now because I'm not capable of it. However, we will find a way to get there. You know, not I, yet. I, I there's, there's yet not yet. Exactly, the Carol Dweck, not yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's just so there's so much there. Um, one thing that I think is important to hit on um, is the idea of winning at all costs. And you know, I, me and Lewis graduated from the University of Alabama, and Nick Saban, uh, bless him, is all about. It, it, it's it's not about winning. It's about preparing to win. And so, can you talk about um, I guess the difference in um, in culture that you create when it's win at all costs versus we're going to prepare our best to win? And there's a bunch of different sure. anecdotes through the book that are, are excellent uh, in this that I can't re- I recommend. Sure. Uh, So what's interesting is, is again, the book
1: came out of this warrior brains concept and warrior brains was actually a, I took a workshop and distilled it into a short, shorter presentation for organizations that didn't didn't want to do workshops. The workshop was warriors, not winners. And the concept was that we have an opportunity to teach a win at all costs mentality, which is the winner's mentality, or we have the opportunity to teach a warrior mentality in our children, which is that compete at all times. But it's that understanding that it's, it's, it was all about five, it's now up to 12, but I've got 12 Psychological principles behind it, things like motivation. Are our children intrinsically or extrinsically motivated? A lot of times when we focus on winning, that's an extrinsic motivation. And when we're the one in control and we're trying to drive them to win and create that win at all costs mentality, we're also taking control away from them. So it's an external locus of control for these, for our athletes. And the point of having that preparing to win concept is you, you give control back to them. So you become the one that, um, or they become the ones that drive that. They're the ones that are embedded in the process. They're the ones that set the goals. They're the ones that aim for it. They're the ones that show up every day and compete. And you're just, you've just become a guide or a navigator for them. And that's what I like about Nick is Nick sees that it's not just about building life skills and values and, and mentorship. It's also about, like he says, or like you just said, preparing people to win, being prepared for this. And when you win, there's a mentality there that, hey, this isn't the end all be all. Like there's another mountain to climb tomorrow. There's another game to play tomorrow. There's I can be better. We have seen that win all cost mentalities where we're cheating in Little League, or we we've seen pro athletes who think it's all about them and not about the team. And they'll they'll jump from city to city to win a championship. And then when they get there and finally win one, they act like it's all them and had nothing to do with their teammates, or those ones that are so driven by winning that they erode the culture around them to the point that every team they go to the team starts to fall apart, even though they're one of the greatest athletes because they have a win at all costs mentality. The warrior mentality, that compete-at-all-times mentality, understands the striving together. It understands the having to work hard every day. It understands that there's no such thing as a diva, that we're all in the trenches together. We all work hard. It's the we mentality. Mm. When when we win, we win. When we lose, we lose. It's not you lost and it's not I win. And so that, that in the book, I try to really drive home that, Spartan mindset of be in the process, learn to adapt, innovate, accept failure, and learn how failure can teach you to be a little bit better the next day. You don't have to make big leaps. It is about incremental increases day after day, the marginal gains mentality, that there are those around you that even your competitors, this is my biggest one, even your competitors are your allies in success. And that's a hard one for a lot of extremely competitive especially you know like winner focused people to understand the root word of competition is competere which means to strive together so at Mm -hmm. the very root of that word it was always about working together and it's hard to see i'm a huge i'm a huge sec fan i worked at florida for a few years it's hard to see that another team in the sec that so when alabama plays auburn (laughs) is it the iron bowl is that the one is that the game yeah yeah mm um yeah (laughs) yeah So when they play each other, it's hard to see Auburn as, you know, not an enemy as a Those as ally, low but down, dirty. Nah. <laughs> it is, <laughs> but they're an ally because you, you play, some teams will play all They'll work all year just for that game. So then, well, didn't they make you better? You, mm-hmm. you, your goal was to beat them. So they made you better. And when you were on the field, didn't they throw everything they had at you and you threw everything you had at them? Iron sharpens iron. So they were allies. So when Alabama wins national championships, and they have to get through the SEC to do it. The SEC competitors that they went up against, they were allies and then winning that national championship because they were what made them better every time they stepped on the field.
0: I love that. Yeah, I, I think I want to dive a little bit deeper into the I versus we um, d- dichotomy. There's a, a part in the book where you talk about the UConn head coach where they've won 111 games in a row and they lose and it's, he's getting interviewed in front of the locker room. And he says, uh, we just weren't ready. And I love that. I think that that's so powerful. Or maybe, it's, I think it's, maybe we just weren't ready or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about um, that kind of leadership and how important it is? I'll tell another quick story or give another quick example
1: to help illustrate it. Uh, there was an English Premier League academy team for one of the larger English Premier League teams at their academy level. So some of the older players who weren't quite ready for the, the high, highest level yet. And they were playing against another team that it, was a, it should have been a clear win. They should have wiped the field with them. You know, should have been an easy outing, a, a, pad, a pad your stats type of game. And they ended up losing the game. And the person telling the story said that the senior coach was there that night and watched the game and watched this embarrassment, which should have been a humiliation of their program. And the coaches were livid. They were just beside themselves and they call the players in and the players come over and they're trudging heads down and they know it. They're going to get their hair blown back on this one. They're, they're going to be, you know, they're going to Bill Cowher scream at him, you know, where the, the spit's coming out. He's so frustrated and everything. I used to love when Bill Cowher gets so excited and they're going to see that now, right? And instead, uh, the senior coach says, I got this. Let me, let me, let me, let me have this debrief. And he says exactly that same as what was said by the UConn coach we didn't prepare you well enough. We lost tonight. It's on us for not preparing you for this game. It's not on us. It's on us for not, for not stressing to you how important every game is, no matter who you play, that everybody comes to beat you. And we didn't, we didn't drive that home. We will go back to the drawing board. We will fix this. We will move on. And as, a, as an organization, we will get past this, but we didn't prepare you. And the player's emotional state changed. The person relaying the story said that these players went from just down to their chins lifted up, their chests lifted up, because now what you have is you have a leader who not only believes in you, but who stands alongside mm-hmm. you. You have a leader who's willing to shoulder the burden with you and a leader who's willing to say, I need to grow too, and I will admit my faults, and together we'll get there. And especially at the youngest ages, when you stand alongside a child and say, we're not there yet. I will stand alongside you. I'll give you the tools and resources that you need to get there. I will be here the whole time. I've got you because I believe in you. It lights a fire in them. And that's what it did for that team. And that's what it did for UConn is he didn't blame him and he could have. It was a team of freshmen and he could have said, you blew our streak. What were you thinking out there? You weren't thinking. What What's, what's going on? You, I can't believe you did this. Instead, he stood alongside them. So he turned what would have been an eye language like, I am disappointed that you lost that game for me into we just were not ready for this and it's such a beautiful statement because it's that servant leadership at its best
0: absolutely and you know the results of getting to 111 games in a row of a winning streak aren't possible if you don't have that mentality or or that kind of coach in the first place that that it's all about we if he was saying i'm the best coach in the world he probably wouldn't have gotten to you know 20 wins in a row but one thing I wanted to to ask you about is um how you advise or help coaches control anger. Cuz I don't think that, you know, any grown man wants to scream and call a little kid a donkey. Like I don't think that they want to berate uh, a 9-year-old, but they just anger fills up inside of them and they let it go. And so like you know they're not bad people. They just have this bad part of them. How do you assist and and advise those coaches to limit their anger?
1: I think the first thing is it's not about us. It's about them. And so it's getting to understand that we had our chance. We lived our journey. We we had our glory. That this isn't about us. So again, it's back to that we I language. Like mm-hmm. we're not coaching to win trophies. We're not coaching to create glory. And I just saw a meme that somebody shared earlier that was like, you know. It was ever, it was the, the scene from Anchorman where he's like, I'm kind of a big deal. And it was like every travel coach ever. I'm kind of a big deal. Yeah. We all think (laughs) we're kind of a big deal, but we're not. This isn't about us. It's about them. We had our, we had our chance at glory. And if we got our 15 minutes of fame, great. If we didn't, it's now time for the next generation. So it's first getting to understand that it's about them and their development. The second thing is, is detaching from that again, locus of control, detaching from that and realizing that we can't control everything from the sideline. If our team isn't playing well, then we should have done better in training. That That's on us in training. There's nothing we can do or say in that moment that's going to change that. And the anger serves us no purpose. It's also getting them to understand. I used to do this. This was one of the ways that I would actually help coaches who said, oh, Reed, I, I really lose my temper and I can't help it and everything. How would you feel if that was your son being screamed at? Mm. How would you feel if that was, how did you feel when you were a child and that happened to you? Because a lot of times coaches say, well, that's why I, how I was coached. And- one particular was pretty nasty to the kids on a fairly regular basis. And one time I called him on the carpet and he said, well, that's how I was coached. And I turned out just fine. And I had to be a little harsh with him and say, did you? You don't you're seem screaming fine. at nine-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and my wife likes to point out, hey, I remember a certain coach who would, who would lose his, it was usually with the way the game was going or referee or something, but who would flip his visor and, and stomp on the sidelines and say, yeah, you're right. I had a temper too, I, I did. And I had to have those coming moments where I was like, Oh my gosh, these are kids and they're mirroring everything I do. Mm. The other thing that I always tell coaches is there's two things about losing our temper with children, with any athlete, actually. One is when we show certain emotions, every emotion, they feed off of it. They're mirrors. So if I'm anxious, they're anxious. If I'm angry, they're angry. If I complain at the referee, they complain at the referee. If I'm happy, they're happy. And so as a coach, how do you, it's contagious. How do you want your, your athletes to behave because they'll catch it. Whether we want it or not, they'll catch it from us and they'll behave that way. And usually you can see it. A lot of times when my sons are playing now, they'll play a team and I can, the players are chippy and this, and then I, I watch the coach for a little bit and I'll say, I bet you that's coming from the coach. And sure enough, there it is. So that's one is if you're losing your temper, guess who else is? Mm. Like you've just derailed your own team's morale based on how you behaved. And I saw it myself when I would get that way and flip my visor. Players go, oh, coach is mad. And then all of a sudden, they're all complaining to the referee. And I'm like, what good is this? Now we have 20 of us yelling at the ref. What good is that? <laughs> and it's not his or her fault we're losing the game. It's our fault. The other thing is, and they, and they, sometimes a lot of people gloss over in the eyes when I talk about the brain science, but brain science proves that when you yell at people, the brain activates the amygdala. The fear center of the brain is what takes over. It's in control. If you subscribe to Dan Siegel's work, he talks about the, you know, the brain and the palm of the hand. And the amygdala is the base down here. And the, the frontal lobe, where, where logic takes place, it wraps around. So this is the part of the brain that does all the thinking and the skills, where skill is and where cognition is and all that. When we lose our temper, we go like that, and this is in charge. Hmm. Well, that's the fight, flight, or, or, or freeze response. So when you, when you yell at your athletes and they choke, and then you go, what are you thinking? My response to coaches is, they're not thinking. You you've shut down the logic part of the brain when you started screaming at them, So they're not thinking, they're trying to decide do I fight, do I run, or do I just stand here and hope that the threat goes away. And I see it all the time. I was watching a volleyball game recently and the coach yells, "What are you thinking?" and the kids kept making mental air after mental air after mental air and it was like 6 7 straight points of unforced errors. And the coach yelled, "What are you thinking?" and the thought that went through my head was, "Well, Every time they make an error, they look over at you. So I'm pretty certain they're not thinking they're just afraid to make mistakes. And so I, you have to have those hard conversations with people. Sometimes if you want to be a great coach, keep them in the logic space of their brain. You can demand excellence. You can still demand it from them. But the moment you start demeaning, the moment you start screaming, you've shut off the logic part of the brain and they're just going to spiral on you.
0: I'm curious, how do you dish out punishment within this framework? Like, we deserve to, you know, run laps when I was a kid. Like there was times when punishment was necessary and, and good for us. So how what is your kind of framework around, um, around punishment? Uh, I always set the tone. I, we were, they were always very clear, and
1: that's another key for us as communicators, as leaders. If we have very clear expectations and standards and we start to hold each other to them, a lot of times the athletes will then, my goal is to be redundant to them. My goal is to be that they are actually accountability partners for each other. So an athlete made the day that an athlete turns to another and says, is this what we agreed upon? Is this the standard we have? Or is this our, are we on mission with this? Then I know we've done our jobs because we've got them holding each other accountable. But so we have to set that out ahead of time. These are the standards that we all agreed upon. This is how we will perform. I will call you on the carpet when they're not Mm -hmm. there. And then the other piece is, do you, do you want to be held on the carpet from a perspective of like, there are consequences because sometimes actions have consequences. And then we talk with the athletes about, well, what are those consequences? What do they look like? And my big thing is I want the consequences to be game specific. So for me, if I'm working with, um, athletes in a very, uh, let's say I'm working with, um, well, volleyball players, for instance, and they're doing pushups and sprints, I have to ask, is that a transferable skill? Like, mm. Uh, my son's a volleyball player and, and sometimes for their uh, consequences or their punishments, they'll do wall jumps. Well, that's a transferable skill because they have to jump in volleyball. So that was the other thing I'd do with my athletes is what's a transferable skill? Do you want to do sprints? Well, in soccer, yeah, we would, but we would make them game specific. We would try to do things that built up certain movement patterns or certain skill sets within those athletes that lend to the sport. And my biggest fear with punishment, and we all do it, and I did it, My biggest fear with punishment is I never wanted athletes to see something like fitness or 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 strength training or a skills training as a punishment mm-hmm. because then they would hate it. So if we agreed upon ahead of time with the athletes, like, hey, coach, if I, you know, I had an athlete who had a mouth on him, and I sat down with him one day and said, <laughs> you, you, he was like 16. I said, listen, you, you got to stop dropping f bombs, man. <laughs> I, I I get it. I understand, and I know it's you know it's a sign of intelligence and all and all that. I get it. I get it. But for decorum on the field, respect to the referees and the fans, respect to the other players. And it's not up to our standards as a team. We can't, you, you, we, we just can't. And I, we, we can't have this. I said, so are you struggling with it? Yes. Can you hold me accountable coach? Great. I will hold you accountable. Cause I I'm assuming it just comes out automatically. It does coach then fine. As long as you and I agree, I'm going to be your accountability partner. I'm going to hold you t- to it when you do it. What do you want Me to do and he says oh coach man i'm really trying to build up my strength my upper body strength there like that can can i do push-ups for my punishment that's what he wanted and i said fine we'll do push-ups well in practice he was getting really strong because he was doing a lot of (laughs) push-ups we get in a game one day and he's on the far side of the field and he lets out a big f bomb and he turned after he says it i just say his name i go hey and i was just going to remind him hey we don't use that i wasn't going to punish him in the moment and as soon as I say his name, he turns to me and goes, "I know, sorry." And he drops and starts doing pushups. And the referee goes, "What, what is, is he happening? doing?" I said, "Hey, that's
0: <laughs> so, so that's funny. that's the one time I didn't mean to make him do him in the moment, but that was that's what he wanted as his consequence." That's great. Yeah, I think setting expectations is uh, is super key to dishing out punishment. And the reason I think that I call it punishment is because. I did cross country, uh, for one year in high school and we always used to brag that our sport was your punishment. And so that kind of stuck <laughs> in my, in my head. Um, but no, I and think I don't think
1: punishment's a bad word. It's just, yeah, I would say consequences. Cause a lot of kids have attached a negative thing to right. that punishment and it's like, no actions have consequences
0: accountability yeah. and, and having a, um, an outcome for whatever you put into it. I mean, if you're going to cuss, then this is going to happen. And and knowing that in, in the first place, I think alleviates a lot of that negative attribution to punishment because it's not really a punishment. It's It's the outcome of what you put into it. I was just gonna say, and it doesn't matter. That's the other misconception is, Oh, you know, we can only do that with certain. It
1: doesn't matter the age you can sit down with five and six year olds and set expectations. When I was working with soccer shots, we were, we were using positive discipline to set expectations with three and four year olds. Like they, they understood that they Mm -hmm. got consequences. They got expectations, behavioral and social expectations. So never think it's, you can't do that with a team. If you're not, if you're not cultivating, intentionally cultivating a culture with your team, the culture will organically grow without your influence. And that's where you lose people. And you promote what you permit. So if you allow behaviors to go on because you're afraid, oh, they're too young or whatever, they're not sophisticated enough or whatever your reasoning is, that will spiral out of control. And so I, I just wanted to add that, that even if they're five, six, seven, eight, you can still sit down with those kids. What are your goals for your season? What are your values? You just have to be, you have to use language they understand. We used to break values down into actions. Like say to a five year old, what's gratitude? And they're going to be like, uh, I don't know. But you say, every time, every, every, every time the game's over, you run over to your parent and thank them for coming to the game. Is that gratitude? Yeah, that's gratitude. Okay. So now, now they get what it looks like. And mm. so it doesn't matter the age you can teach those expectations. You can teach those consequences and you can teach the behavioral patterns to them. Just have to use their language.
0: I love it. Um, I want to ask about the word help and, and how asking for help is actually a, uh, a sign of wisdom and strength. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah and I think I mentioned in the book that when
0: we ask for help we're leveraging the the wisdom and strength of
1: those around us right so a lot of times and again it goes back to what we talked about earlier I understood my traumas and my vulnerabilities when we ask people for help a lot of people think we're being weak but what we're doing is we're showing where our limitations are I know where my strengths are I know where my limitations are I've hit a limitation and so help is a sign of somebody that's sophisticated enough to say I'm not there yet are you can you assist me? And there's two things that are happening when there's a couple things that are going on when that happens. One, you're enlisting somebody who actually has that skill set potentially, and you're going to learn from them. It's peer assisted learning. We use it in school all the time. It's Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. If I've got a child who's not reading as well as others, I may sit that child next to a better reader one day and ask that better reader to assist them. We do it. You see it in sports all the time. You'll put one of your better players with the one that's struggling with a skill so they can help them. The other thing that's happening is when you enlist help from other people, you are building in them a confidence, a leadership confidence. You're building in them a competency, a communication competency, and you're teaching them a second time. My uncle, when I graduated from my master's in early childhood education, gave me a, he he's blows glass and, and makes pottery and stuff, and he gave me a, a bowl that had etched in it uh, to teach once is to learn twice. And so when you ask for help, the person you asked the help, the, from whom you asked the help, they're going to learn it a second time teaching you. So you're creating skill proficiency in everybody. And like I said in the book, the other thing is you're part of a team. We're striving together. Why wouldn't you lean on the people around you because you're enlisting the wisdom of the crowd. It's, it's the idea of you know, the, the crowdfunding. You're asking for help as an organization. You need money. I could go to one person and ask for a million or I could go to a million people and ask for a dollar. I'm enlisting the, the resources of the crowd and you see it with surveys we're enlisting the knowledge of the crowd i mean help is like one of the most transformational things we can say because we're not showing we're weak we're showing that we're powerful and smart enough to know that there are others around us who bring skills to
0: the game that can enhance how well we do absolutely i think um you know that's a that's a lesson that only comes from experience and i really like the the point you made about to teach is to learn twice. And I obviously butchered that, but that that's so true. I mean, when you, when you teach something to somebody, it really, I th- I think that comes back to like the brain chemistry, you know, neuroscience type of thing. It's like, it, it just enforces those neuropathways because you have to communicate it in such a way that, that you didn't previously have access to. Um, and I think that that's amazing. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you is about a framework for how to use the lessons in your book for internal dialogue because i think that if we start with the individual and maybe this is like a you know for people that are adults but um, if we can give people a framework for how to think themselves then they in turn will um, do it for other people and and that's like the best place to start. So is there a way that you kind of think about the internal dialogue and and how to um, use, you know, the frameworks that are in your book to do it best? Yeah. So
1: that's a, oh boy, that is a good question. I I haven't been asked that and that's, that is a tough one. Uh, So I like that. Uh, So with the internal dialogue, I I guess the framework that I've always sort of used since I got geeky and nerdy and really went down rabbit holes on brain science and skill development and everything is I started thinking about cueing language. Nick Winkleman has a really good book out there about cueing language. Uh and 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 he talks about how we have to use certain words that actually are the best ways to cue a per- an athlete or person to perform a skill. So my internal dialogue now is about encouragement. It's about uh it's about language that creates certainty. It's about language that drives the, the Spartan mindset. So it's about language that has to do with thinking in the process and competing at all times, all that, all that stuff about control, control what I can control. Don't worry about the things I can't. My internal dialogue also tries to stay as positive as possible because Mark Robert Waldman and his research says that, you know, for every negative thought we have, it takes five positive ones to undo it. So, and we're proof of it. If anybody, anybody listening, if you've been on social media and you've said something before and 10 people have been like, Oh, I love that. And one person has been like, you're stupid. You remember the one person. You don't remember the other 10 compliments. You remember the one person. And it's the same thing with our brain. And so the framework has to be start thinking about language that cues you, you know, if it's your performing skills or you're working in a competitive environment, what language what language gives you the proper cueing to help you perform better. Language that ignites you, so ignition language, language that ignites brain processes. So we always had ignition words and trigger words with our kids when we trained them. And so those words should be coming out, and then that positive language. And one of the ways that you can start to understand your framework is a journal. And it doesn't have to be a "Today I was at the coffee shop and I ordered." You don't have to tell your whole day, but at you know throughout times in the day, because we have a phone in our hands, plug it into Evernote or whatever your notes app or whatever you use. Just plug in some things. What are you thinking of? What 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 phrases do you say to yourself? What what comments do you make to yourself in those important, meaningful moments, the crucibles, as as, as you know, like coaches like to call it. In that crucible, when you are under stress and in a competitive moment, what language are you using? What words do you use? Write them down. At the end of the day, review them and debrief them, and then you can create your own word cloud out of that. Plug them into a word cloud system and see which words tend to pop out the most, and then that'll tell you what your internal dialogue is based on those words that pop out. Then intentionally, start to find a word that you can switch out for that. If the word you use all the time is can't, switch it for yet, or do what we do in our family, which is can't for us as an acronym. Challenge accepted, no take back, which means I'm going to do it now or will, or will, you know, so start to look at your language through the journal and it takes a lot of work and it's, it's requiring an egoless self-awareness, being willing to admit to yourself, wow, I'm really nasty to myself or wow, I'm really not using. And then the other piece is, I I saw a quote one time, I saw two quotes that I really love, but the one I saw recently was like, if this, if your circle around you isn't, isn't enhancing you, isn't, isn't, uh, isn't holding you accountable to be better than you don't have a circle, you have a cage. Mm. And so surround yourself with those people who are willing to hold you accountable. My wife is my greatest fan and she's also my greatest accountability partner. Like she is the one that will turn to me and say, you shouldn't say that to yourself. Why would you say that to yourself? Use a different word. Do you hear what you're saying? This is, and and she's very loving about it, but she's kind and firm with me to remind me, why would you say that? Because my internal dialogue is one of the most, it's one of the nastiest people I've ever met. I'll never meet anybody as nasty as the voice in my head. I just know that. And, it's, it, and I work on it every day. So that's the framework is, you know, figure out those words that matter most for helping you perform better and start inserting those in. Be aware of the language you are using and what words you use most common and make sure that they're good, Those they fit that. They're cued words, they're trigger words, they're ignition words, they're positive words and they're words that get us moving forward and don't shut down brain processes. And they they remind us of the task at hand or they remind us of what we're capable of. And then have accountability partners who can hold you accountable to that. And don't be afraid to tell people what your inner dialogue is. Find somebody you trust that you can tell. We have three I believe we have three voices and I read this somewhere, I, I, I heard it somewhere, so it's not me, but there's one voice that is a, it is a, um, it's our, it's our public voice that everybody hears. And like, I'm talking to you right now, there are things going through my head that I'm not going to say, you're going to hear my public voice. There's a voice that we have. That's a confidential private voice that we only say to certain people. So I won't say it when I'm on a show with you, but my son's in the next room, I believe and he's listening after I'm off, I'll get over and I'll start saying something to him that I wouldn't say here on the show because I I have a I have a private voice that I share, and then there's that inner voice that nobody ever hears. Mm. We have to step out of that comfort zone and be willing to tell people what that inner voice is. One person, just one person or your journal, make it your journal, but tell someone or something what that inner private voice that you'll never share is because it's the only way to start reframing it and rewiring how you speak to yourself
0: yeah, and that reminds me of something that you were talking about earlier and that i'd kind of asked you about um and how your traumas were were frozen on the page and that's what i'm trying to get at is like you know you have this word the alphabet soup in your brain that just kind of throws around these words that trigger these memories and if you can write it down you freeze them on paper and they kind of are you allow them to get out of you and i found that to be incredibly useful i should probably do it more obviously but um at least for my personal internal dialogue and i think that 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 framework that you laid out there is, is, um, will be really valuable for someone listening. So thanks for, for sharing that. I love what you just said.
1: You just gave me a great, so you need to trademark this. (laughs) And I, and if I use it, I'll, I'll, I'll tell people I got it from you. You just, you just created like a word exile, right? So if you write them down, you freeze them on that page. Those words have been exiled from your brain. And so they should never come back to live in your brain again, because if it's a bad word, because you exile it. I I love that. And then burn that piece of paper.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you like it. That's uh that thought came to me through Tim Ferriss, but I'm sure he got it from somebody else. So, uh, you know, I love that's, that's Tim. I love Tim Ferris. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's kind of the impetus for, uh, this podcast and, and becoming the person I was to be interested in starting a podcast like this. So all, uh, all good things to Tim, for sure. Um, I have every one of his books on my bookshelf over there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, okay, I, I've got one last question for you. Um, the the Karen or Carolyn Lyft. I did Google that, and it was terrifying. Um, can you talk about kind of how uh, badass this guy was and then the person who beat him and how that person embodied, uh, you know, a lesson from your book. So
1: Karelin was a, or Carolyn, or he was a Russian wrestler. I believe this was in the federated before Russia, you know, before it was other states, I think they were still consolidated as the USSR and he had never lost. He was a beast and that maybe had lost once. Or twice. I don't, he was an absolute beast on the wrestling world and it was Greco Roman. So it's throws. It's less of the on-the-ground grappling and more of the picking people up and, and throwing them. Is that Greco? Yeah, that's correct. And he was lethal. Uh, so, in the, so if you've ever watched uh, Vision Quest uh, with, uh, with um, uh, Matthew Modine when he was like a, was just in his 20s, he was very young, actually it had Madonna in it too. And he, this guy drops a bunch of weight to wrestle this three-time state champion and the three-time state champion, he goes to watch him work out one day, and a dude is cl- walking the steps of a stadium with a log on his shoulders. It, and it just, I mean, he's a beast, you know. And they say all kinds of, you know, urban myths about this wrestler. And, or the Rocky montage scenes with the, you know, with him trudging through the snow and carrying refrigerators and fighting bears. That was this guy. He was that impressive, that much of a physical force and not only that, but he would pick people up like rag dolls and do the Carol and lift, Corel and lift, which is he would he would basically he would you know arm lock them from behind or whatever you call it. You know, get a get a hold on them, and he would pick them up, lift them, and so that their whole body was resting on his chest, and then he would flip them up over his back. <laughs> Definitely Google it if you're flop listening. Flop them to the ground. It is. It's it puts the fear in pretty much anybody who sees it. I mean, it was just it was brutal, and. So we've got this American wrestler who goes up against him, knowing he's never lost, and this guy he beats him. I mean, he 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 has the match of his life and and beats him. And and I don't I, like I said I'm trying to remember the chapter where I put it in there, but it's such an inspiration. There he is. His nickname was the Experiment. He ne- and he never lost. Okay, so the Russian Bear, Russian King Kong. Yes. Uh, And so he was 290 pounds in his prime (laughs) and he, and he lived in Eastern Russia. So of course he trained in, you know, six feet of snow or whatever. And uh, Rulon Gardner was the one that beat him. And um, Rulon's job was that he never gave Karelin the, the leverage to get the lift on him. And so he went into the match with a very, very uh, astute and strategic plan. And he did one thing that everybody else hadn't done. Everybody else said, you're never going to beat him, And Rulon was like the miracle on ice. He said, there's always a way. The right strategy. And if I play my strategy out the the best of my abilities and I stick to my strategy, no matter what, I I will beat this guy. And so it was a really, it was not only a study in strategic, you know, in that strategic thinking and planning when in competitive environments against what would you would consider a highly outmatched or, you know, a, a competitor who highly outmatches you. It was also a study in his language. He was the one person in the world who believed he could beat him. Everybody else was using the word never. And so I'm not, I don't, I, I, you know, the manifest thing, it's not that we, you know, it's not that I can think about something like, oh, I want a soda and it's going to appear. But manifestation does happen in the sense that if you are Rulon Gardner and you never rule out the ability to beat him or flip it and say that I will beat him, I will beat him, I will beat him, then you are manifesting that because your actions, your beliefs, your thoughts, your interactions, and then your your habits will all lend to that. And it's, it's Steph Curry. He'll never make it in the NBA. And Steph said, watch me. And, but if you watch Steph, the thing about him is he backed it up with action. He had a mindset and that mindset then lent to his his actual physical performance where he worked harder than anybody else to be a great shooter and to make it in the nba and so it's same with rulon
0: choose your words carefully both internally and externally and choose the way that you perceive the words from others carefully um coach this has been a, a, an excellent interview i really appreciate your time is there anywhere on the internet that we should send the audience who at this point definitely wants to read the book they definitely want to learn more about you if you go to
1: coachread.com and i know it it's my name, but it's easy to remember, or it's my nickname, but it's easy to remember. CoachReed.com. You can find everything you, you need there. It's got all my social media links. It has a link to the book. The book comes out April 18th. It's in pre-order now. So if you pre-order it, uh, let me know. Uh, I've got a link on my pre-order page that to let me know that you've pre-ordered it. Uh, and that's, that's where you can find me. And I love talking about words. So if you do read the book, reach out to me. I, I, I've had people reach out and tell me they disagreed with certain words or the usage of them. They've told me different ways they've used them and I'm learning from them when they say that. And so, and it's going to go in my next book.
0: So (laughs) I love it. And all the the links will be in the description and I appreciate your time today. Thank you. And that wraps up another fun episode of the Lewis and Kyle show. Thank you to Reed for coming on the show. Really grateful to be able to sit down with him and discuss his book. Uh, number one, my, my first takeaway is that everything comes down to words whether it's a building whether it's an invention whether it's a a relationship all of it comes down to our base form of communication either written or spoken which is words and i just i had never thought about it before and i thought that that was extremely interesting and a big takeaway for me number two is that words affect the world externally but they also affect the world that you have going on internally the words that you use to describe your situation or your day or or your food or anything else really impacts not only the other people around you which seems obvious but also your own internal dialogue is affected by it and i thought that that was a, a an obvious takeaway but also something that people need to hear and then my last one is that your words affect others more than you think they do you know the saying sticks and stones might break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I think that that's the opposite of true. Well, it's not the opposite because sticks and stones can definitely hurt you, but words can hurt more and words can, pen is mightier than the sword, but you just have to take account and understand that you have a responsibility and a duty to the people around you that you can't necessarily just say whatever you want. You should be thoughtful and think about the words that you say and think before you speak and that wraps up my takeaways and this episode of the lewis and kyle show really grateful that you are listening lewis and i appreciate it and we've recorded 145 plus other episodes that we know that if you enjoyed this episode you'll probably enjoy those so please go check them out on spotify on youtube wherever you get your podcasts we are thankful and if you want to reach out to lewis or i we are on twitter linkedin instagram everything at the lewis and kyle show and you can find our personal accounts pretty easily so thanks for listening and have a great day